This is DW News live from Berlin. Russian President Vladimir Putin speaks out on the standoff over Ukraine. He says the U.S. is ignoring Moscow's security concerns, but signals Russia is ready for another round of negotiations. Also coming up, athletes are preparing to go for gold at the Winter Olympics in Beijing. But political issues and the ongoing pandemic are causing headaches for organizers. And sell them, sterilize them, or save them. The dilemma over what to do with the dozens of hippos first brought to Colombia by drug lord Pablo Escobar. I'm Sumi Somaskanda. Glad you could join us. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the U.S. and its allies of ignoring Moscow's security concerns in his first public remarks on the standoff over Ukraine in weeks. He said the West was using Ukraine to hinder Russia's development. Putin signaled he was ready to continue negotiations, but so far neither side has been willing to budge on their positions. For weeks, he has left the talking to others, but now President Vladimir Putin has accused the United States of trying to drag Russia into conflict. The United States' most important goal is to contain Russia. That's the thing. In this sense, Ukraine itself is just a tool to achieve this goal. This can be done in different ways. One of them is to draw us into armed conflict. Across the border in Kiev, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson offered a show of support to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Johnson warned that war would be a lose-lose outcome. Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be, for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. And... Uh, it, uh, the uh, potential invasion completely uh, flies in the face of President Putin's claims to be acting in the interests of the Ukrainian people. Ukraine is not completely relying on diplomacy to protect them. President Zelensky announced a huge addition to his nation's army. We will create a new political cooperation format in Europe between Ukraine, Great Britain and Poland. Within the next three years, we will increase the number of the Ukrainian armed forces by 100,000 professional soldiers. In a video released just hours before Boris Johnson's visit, soldiers tested rocket artillery systems just north of the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia invaded and annexed from Ukraine in 2014. Both sides are preparing for war, while the diplomats try to make peace. DW's Nick Connolly is standing by for us in Kiev. Hi, Nick. How were President Putin's remarks received there in Ukraine? With little surprise to me, I think this is all part of a discourse from Moscow that the Ukrainians are used to, that Ukraine is merely a pawn in Western games. We heard from top Russian leaders, including former President Dmitry Medvedev, who recently called Ukraine a vassal to the West, um, basically saying that this is all beyond Ukraine's control. And that's why they've basically given up talking to Ukraine and are talking over Ukrainians' heads to the White House about these affairs. Um, I think there is... Uh, 
a sense here that you know this is all part of a bigger picture that Russia has essentially been at war with Ukraine and Ukrainian independence since 2014 when it annexed Crimea, started supporting those separatists in Donbass and that the only thing that's really changed from a Ukrainian point of view is that the West is finally paying attention and seeing it with the same urgency that Ukrainians have been seeing it all down the years. Well, in that line, we saw the Ukrainian President Zelensky announcing uh, an increase in Ukrainian troop numbers. So tell us more about that. Well, he said that uh, conscription will be abolished, that Ukraine's army will move to a fully um, volunteer and professional model, that a further 100,000 troops will be added to the already um, about 250,000 uh, person strong army. But that will take time. That's going to take several years. That is not going to affect the situation on the ground right now. And lots of observers here in Ukraine criticizing the government for not doing enough in terms of the Navy, in terms of the Air Force. Big, big problems there and big weaknesses that Russia will be able to explore if it were to indeed invade Ukraine. Ukraine's army, its ground army, has improved significantly since 2014. It won't be as easy for the Russians as it was in Crimea, but certainly lots of weaknesses here in Ukraine and people are acutely aware of the fact that as a non-NATO member, all they can expect are potentially weapons and money from the West, but no more than that. And Nick, I want to ask you about something else we heard President Zelensky say, because at the same time as this troop increase, he also seemed to indicate that there is no possibility for a Russian invasion. Let's listen to a clip of what he said. Regarding Drivna, our national currency, I think we've uh, contained the situation despite the informational panic or uh, the wave uh, of information attack. We have uh, stabilized uh, Drivna. Um, uh, we have uh, pacified and, and calmed down the markets. We can see the strengthening of the national currency uh, of late. and. In the very beginning, we have discussed with the Prime Minister uh, Ruta uh, uh, and saying that uh, parallel to what we were doing, uh, a lot was done by international leaders providing financial guarantees, sending the signal to the investor and to the market that Europe believes in Ukraine and the stable situation in our market, in our banking systems. So on the one side, Zelensky is saying that there should not be any panic. There's no need to believe that an invasion is imminent. At the same time, he is asking for international backup. Those seem to be mixed messages, Nick. Uh, definitely. And I think there is no real explanation that really satisfyingly um, really draws out why this is happening. And it's definitely already been causing a significant frustration among Ukraine's Western partners. The White House asking why uh, Ukraine is asking for military aid if, um, you know, we heard v Volodymyr Zelensky last week basically downplaying and questioning uh, Joe Biden's uh, take on the situation. I think this is basically because, you know, it is very easy to talk about the potential for war if you are are separated from Russia by an ocean, by NATO membership here on the front lines in Ukraine. It is a very scary prospect and the leadership here in Kiev is acutely aware that the population here could very soon panic if these threats were to seem more real, that the mood could turn. For the last few weeks you have this strange situation where the whole world's been talking about Ukraine and its tensions with Russia and yet here on the ground in Kiev it seemed like life basically carried on as normal. So I think there's slightly kind of schizophrenic um, track from the leaders here on the one hand trying to keep the West engaged, trying to get that help as soon as possible, but on the other hand coming out with these statements, trying to make sure that people here don't rush to supermarkets, panic buy, sell their Ukrainian currency for dollars and do anything that would destabilize the situation here. DW's Nick Connolly reporting from Kiev. Good to talk to you.
The EU Commission has just given the green light for a controversial label that allows certain nuclear energy and natural gas investments to be labeled as sustainable. The Commission says the legislation paves the way for private investment to contribute to our climate goals. But critics believe it jeopardizes the bloc's target of climate neutrality by 2050. EU member states remain fiercely divided over the so-called energy taxonomy, which could come into effect in the next four to six months. And DW's Max Sander is following the story for us from Brussels. Hi, Max. What exactly does this decision mean? Right. So the EU taxonomy is all about uh, becoming for the EU to become climate neutral by 2050. And uh, the taxonomy essentially is some sort of guidebook uh, that is essentially supposed to tell investors what are green and, and uh, sustainable fields to in, invest in, in terms of energy. Um, now, the taxonomy is uh, supposed to help fund this transition to, to, to green energy. And uh, by this, it's supposed to remove harmful energy, such as coal and oil, and replace it with ideally renewables. But in this case, we're talking about less harmful technologies, such as nuclear power and, and gas. And uh, there's been a lot of criticism um, from, from all different kinds of sides. People are saying these are indeed, these are indeed harmful technologies. Um, and also people are saying this taxonomy is not based on scientific evidence, but on a political decision. Yeah, that criticism, Max, coming not just from the Green Party, really from countries across the bloc. So how has the commission responded particularly to the criticism that this is greenwashing? Right. So uh, the commissioner in charge, Commissioner McGuinness, said in a press conference uh, earlier that this is a balance between different opinions and finding a key road to decarbonization. And um, if you have a look at what the commission did um, between the 31st of December when they, when they uh, brought up the first proposal and the proposal that is now on the table, not much has changed after all the criticism, after all the outrage. Um, they made some technical changes in terms of, for example, what kind of fuel uh, power plants um, are supposed to use or allowed to use um, and uh, some uh, changes in terms of verification and compliance procedures. Um, but the commissioner also responded to these allegations of greenwashing, um, where she said the, the color coding is not necessarily optimal. Um, the commission does not see nuclear and gas as essentially per se green, these were her words, but as a necessary, um, as a necessary technology to help uh, with the trans transition to climate neutrality by 2050. DW's Max Zander reporting for us uh, from Brussels. Thank you. Let's get a quick roundup of some headlines now. In Australia, two large bushfires have prompted evacuations on the outskirts of Perth. An emergency warning has been issued with blistering temperatures and high winds threatening to intensify the blazes in coming days. The fires have burned through some 100 hectares of land. And at least 25 people are reported dead in the Democratic Republic of Congo after a high-voltage power cable snapped and fell. The incident happened on the outskirts of the capital, Kinshasa. Authorities say the cable hit several homes and a market, killing several people instantly. Here in Germany, debate is raging over whether a former far-right politician can return to his previous profession as a judge. Jens Meyer was a member of the parliament for the far-right AFD party and is one of the party's hardliners. He was officially declared an extremist by Germany's domestic intelligence agency. He failed to win re-election to the Bundestag last year, and now he wants to return to his old job as a judge. Many question whether Meyer should be allowed to do that. He used to be a member of parliament for the far-right AFD party. And recently, he was categorized as extremist by the domestic intelligence agency. 
Jens Maia is known for his far-right and unconstitutional statements, also while he was in parliament. Back in 2017, he was reprimanded for trivializing the Holocaust. This whole propaganda and re-education directed against us, which is supposed to persuade us that Auschwitz was factually the consequence of German history, I hereby declare this cult of guilt to be over, to be finally over. In September last year, Maya was not elected for a second term in parliament. Now, he wants to go back to his previous job as a judge in the German state of Saxony. According to the law, he's allowed to do that. But many believe the justice minister can stop him from doing so. His behavior during his time as a member of parliament gives reason to at least initiate disciplinary proceedings and to examine whether one can also use his statements to accuse him of having violated his official duties. This could possibly even lead to his dismissal as a judge. The Justice Ministry in Saxony doesn't think it can pursue this route. But there's another possibility, a so-called judge impeachment. If judges violate the German constitution, they can be removed from office after a vote by a two-thirds majority in the state parliament and a decision by the federal constitutional court. But the hurdles are high, and the clock is ticking for those who want to stop Maya. And we have our chief political correspondent, Melinda Crane, following this story for us. Hi, Melinda. What are the chances of, of Jens Meyer returning to his job as a judge? Well, um, it's hard to say. As we heard there, the threshold is, in fact, uh, quite high. Uh, the fact is there are a few legal avenues, as the report pointed out. But precisely because uh, Germany is a country where rule of law is taken seriously, uh, the, hurdles, the hurdles are significant. Uh, the fact is one of the absolute central measures is precisely the one that the authorities had been pursuing in regard to Meyer himself, namely that he was under observation by the Domestic Intelligence Service, uh, the Office for the Protection of the Constitution, and, uh, and uh, thereby that uh, there's awareness of the risks. And then there are measures like the ones we heard about in the report, uh, injunctions, indictments. Uh, all of those essentially represent vigilance on the part of all democratic institutions. And that absolutely is what is called for here going forward. Melinda, there also have been other reports of uh, right-wing extremists working in the judiciary as lawyers, as judges, as civil servants. How big of an issue is this in Germany? It's uh, an issue of grave importance, uh, and not only because right-wing extremists like Meyer are serving as lawyers and judges, but precisely because they're sitting in Parliament, as he did, and have a platform there for expressing views that call the very foundation of Germany's constitution, with its core provision on the inviolability of human dignity, into question. You heard his remarks there about Holocaust denial. Last week, the AFD's somewhat more moderate co-leader, Jörg Meuthen, announced that he 
was quitting his post and leaving the party because it's becoming increasingly radical. Its heart beats ever more to the right, he said, and it pounds ever louder. So the party has been in disarray for some time. And in the last election, it didn't do very well in the West of Germany, precisely because of its rightward drift. But it has had resounding success in many parts of the East. And that is where Mr. Meyer would be working if he's allowed to return to his judicial post. So the AFD's radicalization risks widening the divisions between Eastern and Western Germany as a whole and deepening polarization here. Well, we saw more about the case of Jens Meyer there, but how is Germany uh, tackling this issue on a whole? Well, as I said, uh, the Office for the Protection of the Constitution has been quite active in declaring some parts of and some members of the AFD under observation. Uh, then again, uh, as we heard in the report, uh, various uh, members of various uh, professional associations and democratic institutions also saying we must be vigilant. Uh, mm. And the fact is, if if you look at the reporting on the AFD, you see an ongoing drumbeat of very disturbing headlines, ranging from the party's role in the anti-vaxxer movement, its attempts to get an exception from vaccination rules for some of its members serving in parliament, the use by two AFD politicians of the Telegram chat group to send subversive messages, and more. So there's definitely awareness, but that vigilance is absolutely crucial. Our chief political correspondent, Melinda Crane, thank you so much. You're watching DW still to come. Columbia debates what to do with the dozens of hippos first brought there by notorious drug lord Pablo Escobar. That story is coming up in a moment. But first, uh, Beijing will become the first city in history to host both the Summer and Winter Olympics when this year's games officially begin on Friday. Almost 3,000 athletes will be competing for glory. But with health concerns and political tensions dominating headlines in the buildup, the sports are at risk of becoming a subplot at Beijing 2022. Billions have been invested into making Beijing 2022 an extravagant festival of competition. But the build-up has been about so much more than sport. Politics, for instance. Some nations, including the US and the UK, have declared a diplomatic boycott over human rights issues and will send competitors, but no ministers or officials. Meanwhile, organisers have threatened athletes with punishment for any behaviour or expression that they deem in breach of Chinese law and will expect the IOC to rigorously enforce its own rules limiting protests. In the Olympic Charter, there are very strict rules. So for the medal ceremonies and during the competitions, political protests are not permitted. On other occasions, like at press conferences or during interviews or on personal platforms, the athletes are free to express their opinions. But the athletes must be responsible for what they say. Due to COVID, athletes and journalists will be kept in secure bubbles, while no spectator tickets will be sold to the public. Organisers say health and safety are paramount. Of course, COVID countermeasures are still on top of our agenda. We have been making effective measures and everything is under control. Without a safe games, there would be no games. So we will make sure that the health and safety of all participants is our top priority. 
A total of 32 new cases were reported by Olympic authorities on Wednesday alone. As expected, the pandemic is proving to be one of several headaches for the organisers of Beijing 2022. And we have Tom Ganoy from DW Sports with us for more on the story. Hi, Tom. Just how much will the pandemic disrupt these games? Uh, well, I mean, there's plenty of disruption, uh, you know, already so far. And I think it's probably reasonable to expect a fair bit more. Now, exactly how the pandemic disrupts your games depends on your standpoint. Now, obviously, for the athletes who are currently contained inside this COVID isolation bubble and subject to daily testing. That's obviously, you know, a, a big level of disruption that they wouldn't be used to from previous games. Of course, the worst case is for any of those to contract COVID because if that happens, if they're that unlucky, their games are over immediately. They'll be removed and placed in further isolation. For the reporters who are uh, covering the games from Beijing, there are also similar conditions. So they're in a separate bubble and also subject to frequent testing. Um, and for spectators, the disruption has already been almost total because there are no international spectators at these games. There was no public sale of tickets even for domestic visitors uh, within China. And though some spectators will be allowed, um, they'll be specially invited. It's slightly unclear exactly to whom those tickets will go. So, yeah, I mean, like we heard in the report, there were already 32 cases reported just today. So I think it's fair to expect, a, um, you know, a high continuing level of disruption. And on the political side, the report mentioned that diplomatic boycott from the US and the UK. How has China received that? Um, well, I mean, it's not a full boycott. As we heard, of course, they are going to still send competitors. But, um, of course, it, does, it doesn't sit well. The Chinese uh, government accused the USA of grandstanding, of political posturing and of undermining the Games and the Olympic spirit. It's not the only sort of bone of political contention surrounding these Games. Um, you know, there's also the case of Peng Shuai, the Chinese tennis star, who was not seen for two weeks after... Uh, accusing a high-ranking Chinese Communist Party official of sexual assault and then immediately recanted those allegations. So there are concerns about her welfare. Um, and of course, Taiwan will be competing as, the, as Chinese Taipei at these games. Um, it's another matter of controversy and political dispute because they were ordered to attend the opening and closing ceremonies after previously having said that they were going to stay away. So plenty of political um, yeah, co right. contention distracting from these sports themselves. We can't, we can't forget to talk about the sports. So what do you think we can expect from these games? Uh, yeah, well, of course, still plenty of sporting highlights. Now, it's a slightly slimmer programme, obviously, than a summer games, but still a lot to look forward to. One of the... Um, most hotly awaited appearances will be from the Jamaican bobsled team who are competing at their first Winter Games in 24 years. They've been training in the UK in Bath in part by pushing cars around uh, in car parks. Uh, they're at the Games at three bobsled events for the first time ever. Um, that starts Thursday next week. There are also um, new events such as the Ski Big Air, which is a mainstay of the X Games at the Olympics for the first time and curling, which begins today, um, an iconic sport of the Winter Games. So, yeah, plenty to get excited about. A lot to look forward to. All right, Tom Ganoy from DW Sports. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Colombia is facing a dilemma over what to do with dozens of hippos. They were first brought there by notorious drug lord Pablo Escobar. He was killed by police almost 30 years ago. And since then, a growing population of hippos has been taking over the countryside near his former ranch. Our reporter traveled to Medellin in Colombia to discover why scientists and activists are divided over how to deal with the animals. A legacy of drug kingpin Pablo Escobar and a problem that has grown over the years. 
Colombia's hippos, now the largest population outside of Africa, which is their natural habitat. The so-called king of cocaine brought four of the pachyderms to his ranch. They've now multiplied to more than 90 and are causing havoc. They like it here, especially in high summer when the hippos gather. They swim out there and then reappear somewhere else. They rammed my boat and tipped it over because you can't see them at night. The males aren't so aggressive, but one hit my boat with a big bang. The hippos in Colombia are now the subject of public debate. Animal rights activists insist that the large mammals are completely innocent. But environmentalists criticize the effects the hippos have on the ecosystem and the indigenous fauna. Scientists support an end to the hippos. It sounds rather harsh, but we must clearly state that it must be done. I think that we from the academy must be able to explain why this must be done, even if no one is happy about it. No one wants to kill the hippos. But it's the lesser of two evils in this scenario. The environmental agency has started with harmless birth control, a contraceptive that works with both male and female hippos. The medicine, donated by U.S. animal welfare authorities, is given by injection. Now we must wait and see how the medicine works. Then we'll know if it really will lead to fewer calves. But young hippos often disappear even without medication. The semi-aquatic animals have achieved a kind of cult status among people who wish to imitate Pablo Escobar. Two of the little ones have already been taken away. They were sold. There are a lot of rich people in this country who want to have something like this. The last young hippo was brought to a man who is said to be very powerful. So now there's a market for these exotic animals in Colombia, and they lack natural enemies. That's why this is the largest hippo population outside of Africa where they are indigenous. Coming up next on DW News Asia. DW speaks with Myanmar's government in exile. One year after the military takeover, is the way forward negotiation or armed conflict? And we look at the growing number of attacks on Christian churches in India and what the government is doing about it. Birish Banerjee will have those stories and more for you coming up next on DW News Asia. For all of us here in Berlin, thank you for watching DW.
to go beyond the obvious. We're all in as we take on the world. We're all about the stories that matter to you. Whatever it takes. Five policemen follow being Where we are here is actually on fire. Made for mines. The battle against COVID. The Omicron variant is putting healthcare systems around the world to the test. Vaccination campaigns are accelerating while restrictions are intensifying once again. But are these measures enough to stop the spread of Omicron? Facts, data, and reports in our weekly COVID-19 special. Every Thursday on DW. In many countries, education is still a privilege. Poverty is one of the main causes. Some young children work in mine shafts instead of going to class. Others can attend classes only after they finish working. Of children all over the world can't go to school. We ask why. Because education makes the world more just. Make up your own mind. DW made for minds.